Welcome to the podcast for Resurrection Lutheran Church in Fredericksburg, Texas. I'm Pastor Garrett Buvinghausen. Today is Tuesday, July 7th. We had Bible study this morning at 10 o'clock. And today we are continuing on in our study on uh, the book of Hebrews. We are in chapter 10 now, and we go through the first 18 verses. So um, we went a little long, but uh, it's worthwhile. Uh, there was good discussion. We kind of bounced around a little bit from uh, chapter 10 to chapter 8 to kind of go back on some things I wanted to really flesh out a little bit more. We didn't get through all that chapter 10 uh, verses 1 through 18 really has to say. So we'll keep going next week on that kind of as a little refresher and what it means going into the next part of chapter 10. But without further ado, uh, without further ado, <laughs> here is our study from this morning on Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Let's begin with the word of prayer. Uh, the Lord be with you. Let us pray. Merciful Lord, you sent Paul and Barnabas to preach the gospel in the synagogue of Pisidian Antioch and announced that Jesus is the Messiah, the Holy One, whose, whose, whose resurrection shows us that he will not see corruption. May our union, may our union with him in holy baptism give us peace and comfort in being incorruptible, even as he is incorruptible, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So we had a question. Why do they bless stuff with the blood, right? Doesn't seem to make sense. Um, well, uh, yeah, that's something we talked about last time uh, in Hebrews, right? That there's all this talk about blood. Uh, blood this, blood that. There's, there's all this sprinkling of the blood. Let me see here. We were from, like la last week we went through uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through the end of the chapter, right? Through verse 28. Um, and that's a good question. Why do they bless stuff with the blood? Um, well, it's interesting because even from the beginning, uh, after the fall, there has been a... Um, Shedding of blood to cover up sin. Now, what do I mean by that? If you look at Genesis chapter three, in fact, why not? Let's turn to Genesis chapter three. Let's see what it look. Let's see what it says. Genesis chapter three. I mean, I could I could go to Leviticus. I could go to Deuteronomy and and all these other places to show what like what they did with the blood. But this this is. Um, the first instance here, uh, let me see, where is that? So after the curses are laid out, here we go. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, okay? Genesis 3, 21. This is after God has declared, uh, you know, 
um, the curses because of sin, and um, that includes, sorry honey, pain and childbirth. So um, it's part of it. But hey, men must uh, toil and work in the dust of the earth, but all we reap is thorns and thistles. So I don't know if it's a fair trade-off, but you know. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, nowadays it's a little easy. Okay, but then we see this, right? That um, after these things, it says, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And verse 21, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Think about that. Where do you get skins? Animals. You have to kill an animal. You have to shed its blood to get its skin. That, the, that Adam and Eve, when they sinned, when they fell from grace, when they sinned, what did they do, what did they do first? They realized they were naked, and then what did they try to do about it? They tried to hide and cover themselves with fig leaves. Now, it's kind of interesting, though, because um, I, this brings me to another thing here, and it's a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's pretty worth it. Luther thought that uh, the tree of life, you know, uh, in the midst of the garden were two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, the tree of life, it's been thought, was the altar, like the place where Adam and Eve would go and commune with God. And uh, he believes that the fig leaf was from the tree of life, that the tree of life was a fig tree. So what they were trying to do was instead of taking the fruit to eat the fruit, they would take the fig leaves from the tree of life and try and cover themselves with that, thinking that that's what would make it okay. But what God makes clear is that in order for sin to be atoned for, in order for sin to be forgiven, there must be blood shed. That's why he uh, takes, uh, it says, The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. That it's not about what we do to try and cover up our sins. It's about God covering our sins for us by the shedding of blood. You know, um, that's the consequence it's the consequence of sin. That uh, you could say that that was the first sacrifice. Yeah, um, and it was God making the sacrifice, right? That's very interesting. Yeah, it was the first sacrifice for sin made by God uh, after He had already promised that one day there would be the seed of the uh, there would be the seed of Eve that would come and crush the serpent's head, right? So there's this play throughout where uh, there's this understanding throughout the Old Testament, and we're going to talk about that getting into this, that what it means for blood to be shed, um, and we see here, let's go back to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9, right? Where um, right, he the um yeah, Hebrews 9, verse 18. Um, for, therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. And then you go on and they're sprinkling the blood 
Uh, oh yeah, here we go. Verse 22, Hebrews 9, 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Yeah. So basically, if you condense it down, mm -hmm. uh, blood is, um, is a blessing because it's a one life for another, basically, that's been set up for atonement's sake. Right. The reason why uh, the reason why the Hebrews would need to thoroughly cook their meat, they did they never had rare steaks. Let's just say that there was no blood left in. It was all cooked through because they were forbidden to eat or drink blood because the life is in the blood. Right. That with that life, that uh, pouring out of the lifeblood of the animal. There is the promise of atonement for sins, right? Um, and so we see this, uh, that's, uh, that's a good question. Why is all the sprinkling of blood? It's for purification. It's for cleansing. <clears throat> and there was various, I mean, we were talking last time afterwards that the Levitical code of how much purification needed to go through, there was, it's, it's, there's so much there as far as how much or like certain provisions for this needs to be sprinkled with this kind of blood from this kind of animal or, you know, this, you know, there's all these different provisions for this. And um, that is in the old covenant that foreshadows the new covenant in Christ where there is one sacrifice for all. Right. And that the, the author of Hebrews makes it clear that these sacrifices were limited. They were... No, no, no. They were limited. Limited in their scope and their effectiveness that they cleansed physically, but they never promised a clean conscience. They could not fully atone for the sins of the people. That's why they had to have the Day of Atonement every single year. It was limited. And so it wasn't, and we're going to get into this, but it, it wasn't meant to be that way forever. Um, and we're going to get into that when we get into chapter 10 here. Um, but uh, one second before we get on, just a quick recap of chapter 9, verses 15 through 28. Last time I don't think we talked about the, the one of the things I, I keep saying I like about Dr. Kleinig's commentary on... Hebrews is that he talks about reception and application, how the church has used this passage in the, in the history of the church. And he says that the teaching in uh, chapter 9, verses 15 through 17, where it says that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the people, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. He says that this passage shaped the Lutheran understanding of the Lord's Supper and the Scriptures. 
um, as Christ's testament, his last will and testament, the Lord's Supper bequeaths Christ's eternal inheritance to his heirs gratuitously as a sheer gift by granting them the by granting them forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. Um, so yeah, that's kind of that's kind of that's that's been used for us that um, every time we gather to receive the body and blood of Christ, we are receiving the benefits of that last testament of Christ in the Holy Supper in His body and blood. Um, any questions? That was a good question about why they sprinkled blood on everything. Um, and, it's, and in some ways, it points to the coming of Christ in that they would have to keep purifying stuff in the Old Covenant, but in the New Covenant, there would be one blood covering. In fact, Dr. Kleinig makes it very... He, had a, he gave a uh, presentation on a paper at the symposia at uh, the seminary in Fort Wayne. And he talked about how it's interesting, you see the, um, the way that we use communion, or the way that we, not use communion, the way that we speak the formula in the distribution, saying, take, drink, this is the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ shed for you. He makes an interesting point that it was never about the killing of the animal in the sacrifice, as if the suffering of the animal was what makes the atonement. But what makes the atonement valid is the pouring out of the blood. And so he said, so he made a case saying, in the distribution of the Lord's Supper, when you receive the blood of Christ, he said it's actually more appropriate even uh, for Hebrew standards to say this you know, take and drink. This is the true blood of our Lord Jesus Christ poured out for the forgiveness of all your sins. That it wasn't the suffering, like, the suffering of Christ is not necessarily degraded by this, but it is the act of him suffering, dying, and still doing the work of pouring out his blood on all the world for the forgiveness of their sins. That's what he's getting at here, which is very interesting to, to, to think about that slight difference pouring out versus the shedding of blood so uh, it's a priestly act is what he's getting at that christ does this for us still um, because of that once for all sacrifice made on the cross okay any questions concerns water for <laughs> okay. more humane for the animals. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's a good point. Uh, before we move on here, this is a good point to make. This is something that one of my professors at seminary made very clear to us. He said, listen, we read this stuff as if it's like some sort of manual. You know, this is like just what they just read this and it's like, oh, no big deal. Go through the motions. Oh, take, take this lamb, cut its throat. Get the blood, pour it out, no big deal. He said, but think about it. And I think I've said this before in one of our classes, but it bears repeating. Huh? It's very 
it bears uh, it bears repeating that think about what these families when you go for the Passover and and these um, feasts at the temple you're bringing your own sacrifice for the priests to slaughter and to pour the blood out where it needs to be poured out, right? What does that mean when you, as a family, take a little lamb without spot or blemish that you literally take care of for an entire year in your house as a pet, and then you lead this lamb up to the temple and kill it. Have to listen to it scream and see what the priest has to do to make atonement for your sin. That is the image. That is a glimpse of just how heavy our sin is and what is required for payment. And yet that's not enough. Think about that. That this little lamb that you've raised for a year, treated as a pet, basically part of the household, and then you lead it to the slaughter to see that that's the weight of your sin, but then to know it's not, that's not even enough. That blood of the indestructible life, as the author of Hebrews writes, that's the blood that atones for all, and that is the blood of Christ. Interesting, right? Something to think about, um, and, and putting in this new frame that we don't really, we don't, you know, uh, I think on one of the little handouts I gave to y'all, it said, you know, think about, if you want to get an, get an idea of what it was like to be at the temple during these things, think about like an outdoor restaurant and a slaughterhouse all in one. You know, like, you ha and you have the sound of the animals, you have the smell of the blood, and you have the smell of the burning of the sacrifice, and things like that, all at once. It's quite an experience. We don't have that here. We don't have that here. And, I, and, and to some degree, it, it can be a little lacking, you know, uh, but at the same time, that's not necessary because of what Christ has done. So it bears repeating, talking about what was necessary for the sacrifice and what was necessary for Christ to do on our behalf to fulfill the will of God, right? Interesting. I hope y'all think it's interesting. I think it's pretty interesting. Well, one of the things that, that really ought to make us feel, I don't know how you say it, anyway, the, the love that God has for us that he would put his son through this sacrifice for our salvation. Right. I mean, can you imagine putting your own kid to death? Right. And that your child would be willing to do that? What's that? Yeah. To save the entire world. That doesn't deserve it. Right? That didn't do anything for it. Yeah, it's... So, if y'all didn't hear, he said, just think about what it would be like to take your own son 
and to offer your son as a sacrifice for the entire world, a world that hates you. Something to think about. Okay? Um, before we move on, because you know what? We're actually doing pretty good on time here, and there's not much to get through on chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Um, I might be eating those words later on, but um, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, going back just a little bit, just a little bit, to reinforce this understanding of the new covenant, the new divine service that is actually still tied to the old divine service of the temple, okay? Uh, and it was back in Hebrews chapter 8, I believe, or wait, was it chapter, it's, was it chapter 8 or chapter 9? About, um, that's right, okay, yeah, the copy and shadow of heavenly things. In the tabernacle, in the temple, you know, I gave you all these, these, um, pictures of, you know, you see on one of them is the uh, tabernacle, on one of them is Solomon's temple, on the other one is uh, Herod's temple. Or, um, you know, they all look basically the same. They all have basically the same layout. The incense altar, the most holy place, um, and the holy place, right? Uh, there's always these two parts of the sanctuary, of the tabernacle. And one thing that Dr. Kleinig points out, you know, this, this informs our understanding of church architecture, right? Uh, it's very similar. Uh, this, it's a, it's a uh, um, continuation of the understanding that in this area right here, this is the holy place. And so then where's the holy of holies? It's up here. But what's different? There's no curtain. There's no curtain. There's no curtain. And one thing that he makes clear is that typically instead of a curtain, we don't have it right now, but there's an aisle that leads directly into the Holy of Holies. That the wall of separation has been torn in two. It is gone. And that in this place, you know, it may seem very ordinary, it may seem very common, but when we are celebrating the divine service, when we are celebrating Holy Communion, when we are partaking of the body and blood of Christ, uh, you know, this place is the Holy of Holies. And on that altar, in a, think about it this way, on that altar is the Ark of the Covenant. Have you ever thought about that before? <laughs> kind of interesting. It makes you think. Because what is the Ark of the Covenant? It's the Ark of the Testimony, right? It's the place where God is dwelling amongst His people. And it's not just because we're special here at Resurrection Lutheran Church in Fredericksburg, Texas. But wherever the supper is given, uh, wherever it is administered, 
God the Most High is dwelling amongst his people, right? Uh, and we're not going to get into the weeds right now. That's an, actually a good question to get into of, you know, what is, uh, you know, the true or the valid, however you want to describe it, the valid um, administration of the supper, you know, if we have the supper here, does that mean they have it at a Baptist church or they have it at the Methodist church or wherever? We're not going to get into that right now. Uh, but we will say that without a doubt, here, it, here at Resurrection in Fredericksburg, when, when we are here, this is the Holy of Holies. The Ark of the Covenant is here in the body and blood of Christ, present, forgiving his people of their sins. It's a different way of thinking about the supper, isn't it? Kind of, kind of uh, uh, gives it a little bit more weight, a little more gravitas there, right? To know that you're gathering around the literal body and blood of Christ, the Ark of the Covenant, where God is dwelling, and He is, a t and and He's forgiving you of your sins. So, and that's why you know, uh, with such a weighty thing happening. I mean, that's why we have beautiful stained glass. That's why a lot of sanctuaries you'll see have, have beautiful artwork. Stained glass, uh, some, uh, you know, depending on where you go, uh, you know, they'll have like the gabled ceilings. They'll have just like beautiful, the, uh, the ornate work and things like that to show the beauty of what God is doing for his people. Uh, that... When you walk through these doors into the holy place, reserved for God's people to hear his word and be given his gifts, you ought to be trans transported in a certain sense, in a, in a very sensory way, into a place that is not of this world. That's why you see, um, I mean, if you go into like a cathedral or something like this, like huge, you know, it's not just Roman Catholics. The Anglicans have really nice cathedrals. The, the, um, and it's done different ways in the Eastern Orthodox, too, where you see just murals and these icons and all these things to let you know and convey in some way the heavenly hosts are with you in this worship, in this receiving of the gifts of God that just transport you in a different place. And yet, are these things necessary? No. But where they can be, it really helps, especially with children, to convey what's going on. Because we as adults, we can talk about these things and say, yep, up there is the Ark of the Covenant, up there is the body and blood of Christ. And we can kind of grasp it on a very weighty level. But for children, when they see artwork and they see um, things represented visually and things like that, it helps them a lot more to understand until they can think more abstractly about things and really grasp onto, whoa, this is different. This place is special, right? Yet at the same time, if tomorrow the government came and destroyed this building and drove us out, we could still go meet in a field under a tent with a table, bread and wine, and have the body and blood of Christ. Interesting things to think about. Yet, while we have the ability to have these things, 
it's good to have the artwork. It's good to have the beauty of the created world to reflect the beauty of what God is doing here. Okay? Um, any questions? <laughs> it's kind of a lot. But any questions? Comments? In Houston? Oh, yeah. Beautiful. Uh, beautiful. If y'all don't know about uh, Our Savior in Houston, Our, Our Savior Lutheran Church in Houston, it's this big, like, rotunda-type church building that's built after the... Um, it's in a German-style church where uh, the altar and, every, and, and the pulp... The altar and everything is out, like, in the center of everything. It's like a thrust kind of stage. Not stage, but you know what I mean. It's like this thrust kind of setting, and then like above the altar is this wooden crucifix, hand-carved, full with a corpus of Christ on it and everything, you know? It's, it, and there's like a, a hand-carved statue of St. Michael the Archangel slaying Satan. He's got his, he's got his foot on his head, and he's, in, and he's like about to get him. But then it's really cool, because if you go behind that statue, you'll see that coiling up St. Michael's leg is the tail of Satan, which is a serpent. It's really neat. Like, they, they really went all out in their visual representation of things. Um, again, is that necessary? No. But if you can do it, it's beautiful, and it conveys that weight a little bit better. Right? So, I get excited about these things. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, the churches are like the artwork through the church throughout the ages. I, I don't, it's hard to beat. It's hard to beat the beauty, the beauty that Christianity has brought to the world. Uh, it's, I don't think you can beat it, uh, but I'm biased. So, <laughs> anyways, all right, let's move on. Uh, yep. Just enough time to get through uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. And I'll read that for us here real quick. So, um, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would, not, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins consequently when Christ came into the world he said sacrifices and offerings you have not desired but a body have you prepared for me in burnt offerings and and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure then I said behold I have come to do your will O God as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings 
and, and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a, a, a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. All right. So, um, what are some kind of... There's a lot of parallels here to what we've gone through before. Right? See the parallels of uh, the shadow. Right? The law is a shadow uh, of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, right? Um, we see the blood of bulls and goats, right? We just got through talking about. Um, doing away with the first in order to establish the second, right? That's because this here in chapter 10 is uh, the climax, if you will, the culmination of what was started all the way back in chapter 5, um, where um, in chapter 5, that's where you first start seeing um, the talk of every high priest chosen among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, right, in order to give sacrifices for sins. That's where you start getting into this talk of the high priest and the priestly work and the differences between the old covenant and the new. So this... The author of Hebrews has been building up this entire, he's been building his case this whole time uh, that we've been spending weeks and weeks and weeks on. <laughs> but uh, he's getting to the climax here where he's saying that, um, that in this um, we see that uh, the old covenant is... He's making his case even stronger, saying that the old covenant is not enough because of the fallen nature of man. And he said this before, but he's saying that, you know, to make his case even stronger, he says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, back in verse 1 here in chapter 10, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Why? What does he say? Why, why can't these sacrifices made every year 
actually uh, make perfect the ones who come to receive forgiveness? What's the reason? They were what? Well, human sacrifices, not like they're sacrificing humans, but they're, they're being done by man. Uh, and what kind of blood is being used? Yeah, the blood of bulls and goats. Um, but that's not to say that um, nothing was happening, okay? I think some people get into that, that realm and they'll say, you know, oh, this just shows that this is all just for a show. This is all just, you know, it's that, you know, these things didn't really matter at all. They're just kind of doing them just to kind of have something to do. I don't, know, I don't know who makes that argument, but I think I've heard something along those lines that, you know, um, the people did these sacrifices because God commanded them to. And because they didn't really atone for sin, they'll take things like this where he says, you know, um, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, that doesn't mean that they never took away sins. It's just that they couldn't completely wash away. They were limited, right? They were limited in how much they could atone for. Because otherwise, why would they have to keep coming back every year? Does that make sense? That if they could actually forgive in the fullest sense, what's the point of doing it every year? Well, yeah, God told you to. But these things are for a reason more than just because God told them to, right? They're actually doing something. God is working through these sacrifices to forgive sins. So he makes that argument. He said, obviously, obviously, this was not meant to be the case forever. Otherwise, sacrifice would need to have been made forever. Every year, ad infinitum, you know? It, it, it could never be good enough. Does that make sense? So what's needed? If this isn't good enough, what's needed? What's that? An ultimate. What, what's the word? The ultimate sacrifice? Right. The ultimate sacrifice of the Son of God. Right? Jesus Christ. Um, or skip it. Or skip it? Why? Well, <laughs> if it is not that important. Oh. You know, if you have to do it every year, you have to go back and do it every year, then it must, how do you know that if one year is good and well, that's a good point. That's a good point. So the point is that, you know, if, if you have to keep going back every year, what's the point in doing it? How can you know that that year was good, that the sacrifice was accepted and this, that, and the other, right? Well, and, and to a deeper point of your question, what's the point? Because um, I think the way you know that it was a good sacrifice or that God atoned for your sins is that the high priest would come back out <laughs> to tell you. Right? Because what happens, what happened was the high priest would take the blood and after being purified of his sin, he would be a, make atonement for his sin and then he would go into 
the Holy of Holies, after filling the entire thing with incense, and he would sprinkle and pour, pour out the blood on the holy, on the mercy seat. If that sacrifice was not accepted by God because the high priest did not atone, did not cleanse himself, then he would be struck dead. Because... Is God of love? Huh? This is the God of love? Yeah. That's right. The God of love has consequences. The God of love has consequence for sin because if he lets you live in your sin... Well, what's the wages of sin? Death. So if God lets you live in your sin and die, I mean, think about this. <laughs> He's the God of love, and we have to understand that there are consequences for sin. That the reason why, you know, some might say, well, Adam and Eve just made a mistake. They just ate from a tree that God told them not to eat from. Why does he got to kick them out of the garden? He kicks them out of the garden so that, so that they don't eat of the tree of life and live forever in their sin and damnation. But he goes about making a plan and provisions so that one day they will be restored from that sin. Right? And there, there are consequences for sin, and that's made clear by all these things that God has asked us to do, right? There's consequences for sin in the Levitical Code where the high priest has to make atonement for his sin before he can go and make atonement for the people. If he doesn't, that shows a lack of faith in God's word because he thinks that he's good enough to go in there without atoning for his own sin. So there are consequences. And that's why I'm not sure, don't ask me where this is from, but I've heard, okay? This might be apocryphal, but I've heard that one thing they would do with the high priest is on the Day of Atonement, they would tie a rope around his leg. And when he would go into the Holy of Holies to pour out the blood onto the mercy seat, if it wasn't good enough and God would strike him dead, they could pull him out because no one can go in there except for the high priest, right? And only on the Day of Atonement. So it's kind of an interesting thing, uh, but that shows the weight of sin. It shows the gravity of what it takes to forgive sin and the lengths that God goes to to forgive our sin for good in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the altar of the cross, right? Now, Well, no, so, so what they would do is that, um, and I, 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 I need to brush up on my understanding of these things, but there would be different festivals throughout the year. There's the Passover, there's the Feast of Booths, there's all these different times, and even on regular weekdays and throughout the entire year, the priests are burning altar on the, the incense altar, they're, um, they're uh, praying in the holy place. They're um, making atonement for the sins of the people 
on a regular basis, day in and day out, morning prayer, evening prayer, noontime, noontime prayer, all this stuff for the people. Yet, um, at the same time, what would happen would be on the Day of Atonement, uh, the priest would have a sacrifice, have one sacrifice from a perfect spotless lamb for all the people. It's not that he would take a little bit of blood from the sacrifices of all the different families and go, yes, yeah, that's a lot of blood, right? That's a lot of blood. But he would make atonement for the sins of all the people. And that's what we talked about, I think, at the end of uh, verse, sorry, at the end of chapter 9, where just as the high priest would come out of the Holy of Holies to show everybody that atonement had been made for you, in the same way, we are, made, we are waiting for Christ to come back as our high priest to have that final announcement that sin and death are permanently washed away and full restoration is now being made completed and delivered in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come, right? So... Um, is that making sense? Is that connecting there? We talked about that last time. Um, but here in chapter 10, um, the cleansing provided by the Day of Atonement was physical and limited. That's why they had to do it every year. Um, and the blood of bulls and goats just don't cut it, right? It has a limited effect. Um, it does not cleanse the conscience once for all time from the pollution of sin without any further act needed, right? Uh, but now that act has been completed in Jesus Christ. Um, now, anybody have any questions before we continue on here? Verse 9. Uh, yeah. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Uh-huh. For every place else it says fulfilled. Even Jesus said, I come not to destroy or do away with the law, but to fulfill it. Yeah. And I thought it interesting that he used does away with it. But once the law is fulfilled, then he no longer has a need. That's true. That's the point he's driving. The law was fulfilled and now it's done away with, and you have a new Right. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Uh, and it's not done away with because it wasn't necessary, but it was. And like you said, Christ has now fulfilled it, and in that fulfillment, it is no longer necessary. Uh, so yeah. So then once that's done, a new covenant must come, and that covenant is in the blood of Christ. So yeah, it's a good point. That usually it says, it's interesting, it says he does away with the first in order to establish the second. And the other point was, in the old covenant sacrifices, mm -hmm. Faith neither is any good 
Right. But the whole basis for the sacrifice is that it's made. Right. That it does redeem. Right. That, yeah, so in case I didn't hear that, that the whole point is not the outward working of the priests. It's not the outward working of the sacrifices. But what's necessary is faith, even in the Old Covenant. Um, because like it says here, uh, verse, chapter 10, verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll in the book, in the scroll of the book. So sacrifices you have not desired, and you can even think about Psalm 51, right? Um, a broken and contrite heart, Lord, you will not despise. Right? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That it's not about our doing and our uh, adhering to the law because like the writer of Hebrews says the law could not fulfill these things because of our fallen nature it's just not possible but it's all God's doing working through these things to forgive sins right if it was about our sacrifices we wouldn't be any better than the pagans who would offer up Sacrifices, sometimes even children, to these false gods to appease them because they thought they were hungry or something, right? It's not about that. It's about atonement being made with blood. Um, so, yeah, it's a good point. Um, what do you all think about verse 11 there? Where he says, every, every priest stands... Daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, at least fully, right? But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. What do y'all think about that contrast? The priest stands and does the work, but after Christ has made that single sacrifice... He sat down at the right hand of God. Well, according to my little notes down here, it says the contrast between standing and sitting, the Levitical priests always stood because their work was never finished. That's right. And then I think, you know, sitting is done. Yep. So standing shows the work is never done, but but. Sitting down at the right hand of God shows that the sacrifice has been completed. The work is finished. Right? Well, the Levitical, Levitical priest forgave your sins of the past, where Christ forgave all sins, past, present, and future. Right. Yet at the same time, we live in this strange paradoxical, paradoxical existence that... Just because Christ has forgiven all past, present, and future sins doesn't mean we never need to receive absolution for sins committed, right? That if we say, well, Christ already forgave what I'm going to do in the future, what's that going to tempt you to do? Commit some pretty heinous stuff, right? It's kind of like, you know, uh, uh, 
as, as a pastor, uh, um, I've heard before say, you know, you never, you always have to be careful in using the law and the gospel because you can, if you, if you say to someone, if you give them the gospel first, they're going to hear, oh, okay. So Jesus loves to forgive sins. I love to sin. What a great deal. Right? Um, so it's not that we shouldn't go forward and increase in sin because then God's grace will abound all the more, as Paul writes in Romans, right? By no means. He says, absolutely not. But knowing that our sins have been forgiven, now we can live in the fullness of his grace and his mercy. Not continuing in our sins, at least not willingly. Because our will has been restored now in Christ to do God's will. Uh, but at the same time, we live in these fallen bodies that pull us to sin sometimes. Uh, you're driving down the road and someone cuts you off. You can't help but cry out against them, right? You can't help but, you know, say something nasty at the moment. And for that, you know, that... Christ died for that too, you know, um, or, uh, you know, you're just kind of sitting around with friends, not sure what to say, and then all of a sudden you just blurt out, you know, I can't stand, right, because you just can't help it, uh, your sinful flesh is pulling you to that, um, and for that, Christ died for, the, for, for that as well, right. But God um, wants to hear us repent. Oh, Yeah. That is a show of faith, is to say, Lord, I have sinned, uh, and Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, right? God wants to hear uh, his children acknowledge the truth of the fact that forgiveness is needed, right? And that Christ has died to forgive their sins. So, yeah. It's not about, and, and that's, that's why, I'll get this little bit in here before we stop because we're out of time. But that's why it's also beneficial to know that um, in the Reformation, uh, there was a lot of different ideas going around about the sacraments. Uh, the Lutherans had a conservative Reformation and didn't want to do away with baptism, as the church has always known it, didn't want to do away with Holy Communion, as the church has always known it. And they didn't want to do away with confession, as the church has always known it, in the right sense. Uh, they wanted to fix the corruptions that had come about in that practice. And the corruptions were that we could make penance for our sins. Uh, what the Lutherans clarified and brought back into understanding that the church had known from the beginning was that private confession and absolution is for the good of all believers. That, yes, you can come to church on Sunday and have corporate confession and absolution. Everyone confesses the general confession uh, for all that I have, you know, done, all that I have left undone, I, I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. 
Yet there is times, and that's, that's why we've made provisions for it in, in our hymnal. And uh, I would encourage anyone, you know, that, and, you know, some, sometime in the future I'd like to actually establish hours for this, where I will be in the church at a certain set time, so that if someone has something weighing heavily on their mind, on their conscience, even though everyone else may think it's small, that they can come and I, as your pastor, can be the, uh, as they say, I can be the, the, excuse me, the ear of God to hear your confession and then the mouth of God to pronounce the absolution. Because confession should never be without absolution. And absolution shouldn't be without confession. And it's not so you can do your work and show good works before God in that way necessarily, but it is for your conscience so that you can be remembered, so that you can remember that God loves you. Because it's one thing, and I'll end with this, it's one thing to come to church and sit in the pews or the chairs or stand and hear it directed out to everybody. I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But when you are with your pastor one-on-one, -on -one, and I've experienced it, and it's a wonderful thing, when you're with your pastor one-on-one, -on -one, there's no room for doubt that he's speaking directly to you. It is an assurance reassurance and assurance if you don't have it, you know, already. So, if for whatever reason there's something weighing on your mind, I know, you know, it's like uh, there, there might be a few questions I might ask if there's something specific, you know, uh, like if you stole something, I'm, I'm going to ask, have you returned it? <laughs> right? I can't, I can't just absolve your sin without the fruit of repentance be. The fruit of repentance being restoration in that way. But there might be questions I ask. Uh, but in the end, you know, absolution is paramount. All right? Uh, that's all for today. Let's uh, wrap this up. Um, if y'all have any questions, concerns, you can save them for next time. <laughs> uh, let's pray real quick, and then we'll get to it, okay? We'll pray. Okay. Let's, let's uh, pray, with, pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. 